Well, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you are listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Ethiopia in a human rights dispute. We're going to talk about Israel's foreign policy and some of the noticeable developments there. And then we're going to talk about just how important Ukraine and Russia's food exports are. All of that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so we have gustavo pedro who has won the elections in can uh, i almost said cambodia in colombia and much has been said about him being the first leftist to do so so we'll see what happens with colombia moving forward uh, we have bangladesh deploying its military to help deal with major flooding in the silhit region which is in the northeastern part of the country uh, and there are more warnings now, coming out from the EU this time, of potential famine due to war in Ukraine. And we're going to be talking about that later on. Uh, sort of try to get a picture of what's going on here, and why people keep worrying about this. We have Lithuania, and this is uh, semi-big news, where it could become bigger overnight. But this is pretty important here. Lithuanian sanctions on goods heading to Kaliningrad which is the Russian enclave to the west of Lithuania and to the northeast of Poland. Lithuania has decided to uh, enforce the EU sanctions. That's sort of the rationale they've used. They're enforcing the EU sanctions on Russian goods to prevent goods moving from Russia through Belarus, through Lithuania, to getting to Kaliningrad, because... It has to go through Lithuania no matter which way it goes, unless it goes through Poland. So, by land, Russia is officially cut off from their enclave. Unless, again, Poland decides to open up its borders. And that remains to be seen. So, for the time being, uh, Kaliningrad is cut off. Uh, more so than it usually is. But I'm pretty sure Russia is just going to resort to supplying it by air and sea, uh, but that means going around the Baltic from like St. Petersburg all the way down to Kaliningrad, going around the territorial waters of the Baltic states. So that's probably what they're going to do as the short gap, uh, the stop gap, I should say. And there's been there's talk that this could escalate to an actual shooting war between Russia and NATO which could potentially force the issue of whether or not NATO is actually worth its weight on paper. Because if, if the worst does happen, and you do get a war between Russia and Lithuania, well, Lithuania is not going to fight the Russians by themselves. They're going to file for Article 5. And then we'll see just how much NATO is worth and who honors what obligations. If, if that comes to pass, I'm not entirely sure if that's going to happen, but that'll be a very, very interesting moment in the history of this alliance. Probably yeah. will mark the death of it regardless, but it'll make or break it in the short term, at least. I'm not entirely convinced NATO is in a position to win a war against Russia, not in the Soviet space. Not in the Soviet space. If Russia tries to go beyond that, you might have a chance. Uh, you'd be, they'd, the Russians would be actually pushing the limits of their logistics, going beyond the Soviet Union, uh, the borders of the Soviet Union, I should say, and probably, I'd say, about Warsaw would be as far as they could go before they could, you know, before they'd start running into major logistical issues, but that's halfway through Poland, so I'm pretty sure the Polish don't exactly want to have half their country eaten up before we start talking, before we start talking about legitimate supply issues for the Russian army, and by that point, Russia would have everything it needs for physical border security, a defensible border. I don't I don't see NATO being able to beat Russia in the Soviet space. I mean, again, lot lots have been made 
and sort of ridicule of the Russian military, saying that they're they're barely winning against a country uh, nowhere close to their size and is the poorest country, one of the poorest and most corrupt countries in Europe. And that's because people, myself included, we all expected Blitzkrieg. But then, when you sort of look at the numbers just, just a little bit closer, you see that the Russians have peeled off a piece of their army. About 200,000 or less people, which is roughly equal in size to the Ukrainian army. And they they still have more. They, they haven't mobilized the reserves. They haven't they haven't called in more of their active duty. Excuse me. They've just stuck with that number. And they've taken all this land from Ukraine. Ukraine is unable to force them out. Ukraine is constantly begging for weapons and begging for money. The Russians aren't. Um, even though the Russians are under sanction from all the countries that are supposed to control global finance and control the world economy. And they're they're just they're kicking along just fine. In fact, their currency is stronger than ever. Their economy is already rebounding and they're even setting up domestic production now. So there's much talk about Ukraine winning the war and Russia losing. But I when you look closer, you see that in what is the closest thing to a fair fight Ukraine is going to get out of the Russians, they're losing and they're losing badly. Even with all this NATO equipment they're being given. Now, most of NATO it doesn't even have a standing army anywhere close to what the Ukrainians had. The Ukrainians had 200,000 men. And a decent chunk of them were combat-hardened veterans from the constant trench warfare they were doing in the Donbass. People who were used to being shot at and shooting at other people, people who were used to actual military drills in combat scenarios. Most of NATO doesn't have that. Most most of NATO does not have that. So when you look at the performance of Ukraine, that's uh, sort of a good idea of what you're going to get with a fully-fledged NATO military, and most NATO militaries are not fully-fledged. You have France, Turkey, the U.S., and that's about it. The Greeks have a large army, but they're poorly equipped. The British have a tiny army, but they have a decent-sized navy. They don't, they're not entirely sure what they want to do with it yet. Well, uh, they think they're going to go fight China with it, but that's a mistake. <clears throat> but at the very least, they have a navy, uh, which is what you'd expect out of the British. Germany has no army, and Poland is almost in the same boat, although the Poles are noticeably more uh, enthusiastic when it comes to the defense of their country, and they take this situation in Ukraine much more seriously than anyone else, aside from maybe Lithuania. And that probably stems more from the beef that they had with Belarus, which is how the, the Baltics ended up on opposite uh, lines with B the Belarusians. Try not to trip over my words here. So that yet the continuation of that beef, which is now stewing with the conflict in Ukraine. But given the state of NATO, I don't think we can beat Russia in the Soviet space. If Ukraine is getting messed up this badly in a fair fight, well, what's NATO going to do when the Russians start playing dirty? Because, again, when you look at the war closely, you see the Russians have left the power running, they left the water running, they've left the gas running, they left the internet on. We can still see TikToks and YouTube videos and Instagrams from Ukraine they left the telephone lines running. I mean, if you're trying to destroy a country, those are not things you leave around. The, the, the Russians are fighting with two hands tied behind their back and one foot bolted to the ground, and they're still winning. They're not going to give that same courtesy to the rest of NATO. They will not, especially if they have to defend Belarus. They're not, they're not going to go easy on NATO. That they would lose their credibility with Belarus and potentially sacrifice the Union state. That's unacceptable.
No, they're they're going to go all out. And that's sort of my warning to Finland. Sweden is has a bit of distance between them and Russia. They can afford to make strange strategic moves like joining NATO. Finland cannot. Finland cannot. The Russians will not go anywhere near as easy on NATO as they have gone on Ukraine. And that's the fact that they've been one that they've been going on easy on Ukraine. Incredibly easy. And two, that they will not go easy on NATO. And three, although this is more of an opinion on my part, and maybe it'll be proven as a fact, maybe it'll be completely wrong, but I do not believe NATO can beat Russia in the Soviet space. That's my belief. But um, we will, we'll, we'll see what comes. We'll see what comes. Things are uh, heating up very much in that region of the world. And at this point, every little thing seems to set off a spark and maybe one of those sparks will set off a fuse and then we'll be in for it but uh that's just we will will see we will see we definitely will see Uh, i hope we don't because i i know for almost for certain that my country is going to get dragged into that nonsense in europe when we don't need to be and the only opposition we'll get there is, oh, but China, uh, we don't need to be over there either. But, you know, you know how I am with these things. But anyway, you have Lithuania blocking off Kaliningrad from Russia. Russia's probably just going to resupply by the Black Sea. Well, the Baltic Sea, uh, my mistake. Uh, and hopefully nothing too bad comes from that. In other news, the killing of a British journalist, Dom Phillips has sparked a manhunt in Brazil as the Brazilian authorities are looking for the killers in the midst of the Amazon rainforest. Uh, I, they, I believe they found some of them, but not all. I think the number was four. So we'll see what comes out of that. You have the Danish military, speaking of the Baltic Sea, you have the Danish military accusing Russian warships of having violated territorial waters. So, uh, excuse me. You have a... Very, every little thing, like I just said, every little thing looks like it's setting off a spark. And hopefully those sparks do not catch a fuse. Uh, So that's Denmark. Ukraine, in other news, has moved to block free visa travel between them and Russia. My response is, uh, shouldn't they have done this months ago? I mean, uh, okay, I guess, but... It's a bit late. <laughs> it's really weird. It's jarring. It's very jarring. You're in the midst of this war, and a hundred and something days in, now is the time. Now is the time. We're gonna we're gonna cut those Russians off from this free visa. No, no, no. You need to bring that visa. A hundred days into the war, that that is incredibly strange. But we're gonna move on. Uh, Turkey has jailed 16 Kurdish journalists on charges of spreading propaganda. Did I ever mention how Turkey and Kurds do not, the Turks and the Kurds do not like each other? I feel like now is a good time to mention that. Especially when they're talking about uh, the Kurds and Finnish and Swedish support for the Kurds being main sources of Turkish opposition to those two joining the NATO alliance. But I guess if everybody's at war with Russia, it won't matter if they're in NATO or not. Now will it? There's a possibility for you. There's a bypass to a vote. But, uh, yeah, it seems like uh, we have... Uh, what, to, what do you make of this, do you? Or do we blame the journalists for not looking out for their own health and safety? Maybe they were not being proper in their reporting. Or maybe they... What just ran into the wrong side of town, or perhaps they just have deliberate efforts on the part of a government, <coughs> Turkey, uh, to jail certain dissidents. Or you just have really strange people who who snatch you up and drag you to the Amazon rainforest. This is a, a strange moment. And I'm not entirely sure what to make of all these sudden, unfortunate events happening to journalists. No, maybe, maybe the Kurds were spreading propaganda. 
maybe that British journalist was having some malpractice and he got killed for it. Do I think it warrants that? No, I don't. I think you just fire somebody and you leave it alone. But then again, that's how I do things in my country. And these are not my countries, so I'll just observe. This is what it is, in my opinion, pretty bad thing to be doing. But we'll see what comes of that. And uh, last but not least, we have Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman making a visit to Egypt. And, and he is currently set to visit Turkey as well, and this will kick off a broader tour of the Middle East as a whole. And maybe some deals will be negotiated, maybe some relations will be reaffirmed, maybe he'll progress the detente and reproachment with Iran, which will probably make the Israelis lose a whole lot of sleep. But, I digress, that is the rapid fire news, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alright, and we're back for the meat of the episode, and we'll start with Ethiopia. As an interesting story has come out of Ethiopia in the midst of their civil war, Ethiopia's Human Rights Commission, which was appointed by the federal government specifically for the purposes of transparency in the war effort, uh, this commission has accused the government forces of having committed extrajudicial executions. And these allegations came after the commission reviewed a viral video showing government forces shooting and killing 30 people. So that's a terrible look and a terrible PR defeat in the midst of a war where you're trying to keep your country together. This will be used to fan the flames of Tigrayan resistance and potentially even as a call or can be used by other secessionist forces within the country to call for uh, secession. No better way to put it. And it's a really, really bad look. A really bad look. Uh, unfortunately, 30 people had to die. And for the sake of the Ethiopian government, let's hope that they were actually already tried and this was just a video of the execution taken out of context. Um, because things like that are possible in war. Where something, there, there's a whole string of events that lead up to something and then you catch one moment. And it, you, if you don't explain what happened before, and you don't explain what happened after, and you don't explain why the things are the way they are, it can create a very different image than what actually happens. Now, whether or not that's the case remains to be seen. But... It's a possibility that these 30 men were tried in some sort of military tribunal or a court and sentenced to death for treason. I mean, they are in a civil war after all. So that's a possibility. Well, we won't jump the gun here. But just uh, I, I guess I'll just use this as a, a potential public service announcement for the dangers of fake news. Because if this story is fake, because I think the implications of that would be just as great as if the story is true. If the story is fake. Well, uh, that's a massive blow. And it feeds the war efforts of the folks you're trying to defeat. But if the story is true, it will also feed the war efforts of the people you're trying to defeat. But in a more genuine and solid way. Because it doesn't get disproven. Because, let's face it, the Tigrayan rebels, whether this video is true or not, they're going to run with this as though it was true. And they're going to keep running with it until either they win or they lose. And some of them will still believe it afterwards. But, if it is true, well now you have the added bonus of it fueling the fires of the secessionists, in Tigray and other movements in like the Amhara region, for example, which is just northeast, not northeast, northwest. Well, why do I keep saying north? Goodness. Uh, south. Tigray is in the farthest north piece of Ethiopia you can go. You can't go further north than that. To the southwest of Tigray, 
is the Amhara region, and there are se separatist forces there as well that Ethiopia very much would appreciate keeping under wraps. And, well, not having another secessionist movement pop up while they're dealing with one secessionist movement and having a great deal of trouble with the first one, as is. But if this killing here, this extrajudicial killing, is true, and Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government forces really did kill these 30 people without trial or whatever the due process is in Ethiopia. Well, now you've given a rock-solid region a reason for the secessionists to secede and to make the case for that secession easier. So from the point of view of the federal government of Ethiopia, you want this to be fake news. <laughs> you want this to be fake news. And just as importantly, you want to clear up that fake news as quickly as possible. Because if it's true, you've, you come that much closer to losing the information war. I was going to say the PR battle or the, the propaganda war. But I guess the information war is uh, about as accurate as I can be without making it seem like I'm picking sides in other people's civil wars. If it's true, you, you come that much closer to losing the information war. Because even people that would be opposed to Tigrayan secession or Amhara secession, well, suddenly, if this is true, and you are committing these extrajudicial killings, well, why, why should we support you? I mean, maybe maybe they have a point. Maybe they they should secede. Maybe we should secede too. If this is what you're doing to people who are supposed to be our people. We're supposed to be the good guys. Because that's what everyone believes when you're at war. We're the good guys. But how can we be the good guys if you're killing people without due process? And just, just executing them on the spot. They might be traitors, sure. But you need to they have a due process that they have to go through before you do that. If this is true, Ethiopia will come, come that much closer to having to deal with more secessionist movements. And it's, again, it's struggling enough with the first one, which is Tigray. They're struggling enough with keeping down Amhara already. They don't need more. More would probably break their back. And at that point, they have to call for foreign aid to help them, which may or may not come, or it'll come, but to the wrong side from the point of the Ethiopian government. This is a, a little bit consequential here, very consequential, uh, namely on the information war front of this civil war, which in some ways can collectively be just as important as the actual front. If you lose the PR battle and the other side is vindicated, well then why would your people be motivated to fight them? And if your people aren't motivated to fight, you'll get mutinies, you'll get strikes, you'll get all these things that are incredibly detrimental to a war effort. The information war is important. It's, it, it's important. It's not, it's not going to win you the war, granted, but it's an, infor an important theater of battle. So, just something to think about there, some food for thought. As we come across this uh, odd, hopefully not true story of extrajudicial killings, but a consequential one nonetheless, if it is true. But that's Ethiopia. Now we're going to jump over to Israel. Because uh, Israel is in a tough spot. And I think, I think, I might be jumping the gun here, but I think Israel's now just starting to catch on to the fact that they're in a tough spot and that that spot is getting increasingly tougher because it's caught between a rock and a continental plate. So we'll just jump right into this. Israel's foreign minister, Yair Lapid, is currently set to visit Turkey this week. And this is partly to reaffirm commitments and relations with Turkey which is the, a good reason to do it so, to visit Turkey. But another reason, and this is the other side of the coin here, 
is that this is partly out of concern for the safety of Israeli citizens. And that is that Israel is afraid of Iranian agents, covert agents, harming Israeli citizens when they're in Turkey. So basically, just taking a, a step back here, from stepping away from Israel's point of view to a, my much more comfortable bird's eye view from across the ocean. So basically, Israel's afraid that Iran might do to Israel what Israel has been doing to Iran for years now, which is, uh, well, extrajudicial killings of citizens of another person's country. Uh, which is what Israel, if we're all being fair here, Israel has been doing that to Iran for years. I mean, we've documented it on this podcast multiple times. So now Israel is afraid that Iran is going to do that to Israeli citizens. <laughs> but it, say, I'll just say it, it's, it's hypocrisy. It is, it's hypocrisy. I mean, it's sensible for them to be worried for the safety of their citizens. Don't get me wrong. It's very sensible for that to be the case. But it's hypocritical in that you want your citizens to be safe from foreign agents attacking them at the same time you're willing to do the exact same thing to Iran. And it's specifically Iranian agents that Israel is afraid are going to attack its citizens. You, you created this problem, and I guess this is sort of a, a, mini, a mini tirade against interventionism played out by Israel's foreign policy instead of our own in the United States. But they created this problem. And now they're reaching out to Turkey to help make sure Israeli citizens are safe when they're in Turkey. So I guess there's a bit of a, a poetic vengeance there. But um, uh, there are a number of interesting takeaways that I got from this uh, story about Israel's foreign minister heading to Turkey for that being one of the reasons, the concern over citizens. And this is, uh, how do I put this? The fact that this is potentially being brought up with Turkey, because it hasn't been brought up with them yet. This is just a little bit of speculation here, but you know how I love my speculation. The potential, the potentiality of this being brought up with Turkey means that Turkey is now being caught up in Israel and Iran's undeclared war. All right, and that that's that's one thing that I've taken away from this. And but Turkey is not a tiny country that can just be tossed around. They're a big boy in the block. They can make their own decisions. They can decisively tip the scales in whosever side that they would like, if they were to be truly involved in this and commit themselves, which they could do. You know, they they're doing operations in northern Syria. Maybe they negotiate a deal with Israel or Iran. Look the other way so we can carry out our operation here. So, but Syria's an Iranian ally, meaning Iran would have a little bit less room to maneuver on giving a concession like that, which makes Israel the better partner. Now, that, that, now that's even more speculation than I'm already speculating, but just, just some extra f speculative food for thought. But Israel is trying to bring Turkey into this undeclared war. Whether it realizes it or not, this is what these sorts of moves will do. Because it directly involves Turkey in the, the beef between Israel and Iran. You protect our citizens, Israeli citizens, from Iran, who wants to hurt us because we've been hurting Iranian citizens. Uh, that's like fighting somebody, right? Running away from him. That guy chases you down. You go to your friend who doesn't know what is going on. He didn't see you get into that fight. He was in a completely different location, right? You go to him, say, hey, protect me from that guy, all right? He he, he wants to hurt me. And that friend, now he, he's not necessarily a close friend, but he, he's an acquaintance. And if you get to him first, he might be on your side. You tell him, hey, protect me from that guy. He wants to hurt me. When you do that, you've involved this acquaintance in your conflict 
with the guy that you've been attacking and that you've now run away from. Who, but that guy wants the beef, he wants all the smoke, and now you're involving other people. Now, the acquaintance doesn't know what the hell's going on here. He's, he wasn't involved before, but now he's being involved because one of the parties is trying to get him involved. So that's what I see here with Israel potentially going to Turkey to get them to concede or promise some sort of protection for Israeli citizens, namely against Iranian agents. That's one thing. But what I noticed from that, that concession, is that it marks an observable shift in the power dynamic between Israel and Iran. Uh, not whether or not they actually go through with asking Turkey to do this. The fear, just the fear alone, we'll, we'll stop with the speculation and just look at the fear that Israelis have about being attacked when they're out of country by Iranian agents. That fear and the, the talk of potentially trying to get Turkey to do something to protect them marks an observable shift in the power dynamic between Israel and Iran. Because Israel over the past few decades has always been happy to go it alone. No matter the country, no matter the threat, no matter the challenge, they would always handle these sorts of things by themselves. But here, we can observe two things. We can observe, one, that Israel knows Iran has the capacity to retaliate against Israel whenever Israel does something that Iran doesn't like, namely in the espionage and covert operations field of things, where they assassinate high-level Iranian personnel. The Israelis know that Iran can do that back to them now. Not necessarily in Israel itself. But when Israelis go out of country, it's fair game. The Iranians can get you. They have the reach. They have the capacity. And Israel knows it now. And they know that Iran is increasingly willing to do so because... Israel's been doing this to them for so long. And now Iran is resurgent and has become an incredibly powerful force in the region. They now have the ability to hit back in a meaningful way. Almost tit for tat. They, they can't quite do it to Israelis in Israel. But anywhere outside of Israel, Iran can do it back. And that, it shifts the power dynamic. Because it used to just be Israel can do whatever the fuck it wanted to Iran at any moment, anytime, anywhere, even in Iran itself. I will never forget that story of two Israeli agents on motorcycles pulling up to someone's, pulling up to this high-level nuclear uh, engineer who was in this car, in this limousine. They pulled up to him, shot him dead, and drove off like it was an action film. I couldn't believe my eyes when I read that. But it was real, and I'll never forget it. Israel has been doing this for years, and they increasingly know that Iran has the ability to do it back to them. Not yet in Israel, but outside of Israel, they can do it. They, Israel knows it, and they're increasingly worried that Iran's going to flex their muscles, and that it's going to it's going to set the stage for an actual fair fight that Israel can't win. Israel's had the technology advantage, they've had the the money, the financial advantage, they've had so many advantages for so long, even though they didn't have the manpower advantage. They had other advantages that could compensate. Those advantages are fading, and Iran is getting stronger, but Israel's unwilling to change. And that leads us to the second thing we can take away and observe from this situation, which is that Israel knows it cannot handle Iran and Turkey together. It can't handle those two by itself. So now, the country seeks the best relations possible with Turkey. Because as long as Turkey is neutral, then Israel can have a fair fight with Iran.
or they can continue beating down on Iran. They can't do that if Turkey's on Iran's side, or if Turkey leans towards Iran's side, because it's in Turkey's interest to do it. They need to make sure that Turkey's neutral, which Turkey's willing to be, increasingly, probably for some sort of ex exchange. Yeah, you look the other way. We're doing this operation in Syria. You look the other way. Hey, we're arresting these Kurdish peoples in our country. You look the... Don't you say a damn thing. You understand? Now we'll be neutral. We could start seeing things like that pop up. But Israel knows it cannot fight. Iran and Turkey at the same time. And it knows that it's increasingly incapable of fighting Iran. No. It's still able to do so right now. It's still able to pull up to Iran in Ira Iranians in Iranian territory and do unspeakable things and then just drive off as though nothing happened. They're still able to do that. But Iran is growing in its capabilities. Israel knows this. And they can see it. And we can see that they can see it. And that, that's the crazy thing. We can observe it now. Like, if they knew this before, now it is observable. We can use this as a definitive point, saying this is a moment where we know for certain Israel knows that the tide is changing. They cannot handle Iran and Turkey by themselves. Iran is getting more powerful. Iran is the dominant power of the Middle East. And even Israel is now being forced to alter the course of its foreign policy to account for that. But, here's the, the catch. Will those alterations be a course correction or shots in the foot? Will they course correct or will they shoot themselves in the foot? Only time can tell but if the right things are going, we'll definitely find out in the not-too-distant future. Whoa. Uh, I, this is a flashpoint. This is a flashpoint. They're in an undeclared state of war. I'll say that again. And Iran has become the dominant power of the Middle East. How will Israel respond? Because they've, they've just now started to respond. So that's an interesting thing to have come from all this. They're now starting to respond. But will they course correct? Or will they continue on their self-destruction? We will definitely find out. But now, we'll get to the Russo-Ukrainian War. Uh, the economic side of things. Not just focusing on Russia exclusively this time. Now we're talking about food exports. Ukraine uh, has a... They've had a 40% decline in its harvest due to the war. Uh, the war on land. And due to the blockaded sea, 80% of whatever's left can't even get out from the port to the end markets. Saw a post saying that they usually, monthly, are exporting anywhere from 5 to 6 million tons of grain and wheat. And now it's down to, since the war began, they've had 1 million exported for the past 4 months. So if we run with that lowball, the 5 million per month figure, that's an 80% drop. Meaning only 20% is getting out. So... After seeing that, and after hearing so much about Ukraine and Russia's significance as agricultural exporters, and hearing multiple warnings now of potential famines around the world due to the wartime disruptions in Ukraine, I figured I'd look into some of those numbers to try to get a better picture of what we're, what we're talking about when we talk about famine and the disruptions and the blockades and why there's so much pressure being put on Russia to open up, you know, these corridors to allow the grain to get out. They've allowed some of it out, obviously, but not as much as would be needed to avert these famines, as is evident by 80% of Ukraine's yield not even being able to get out of the country. So... After hearing all that, 
after seeing just those numbers alone, I decided I'd look into it a little bit more to try to understand what we're talking about and understand why people are talking about famine. And people, organizations, institutions, why are they talking about famine? Why is this so important? It, how big is this? And here's what I found. A third of the world's wheat and barley come from Russia and Ukraine. A third. So right off the bat, this is looking pretty serious. Just those two countries alone account for a third of wheat and barley. And of that, you have 45 million tons of wheat and barley. Uh, we'll just say grain to make this easier for me. You have 45 million tons of grain coming from Ukraine. And you have about 43 million tons coming from Russia. Combined, that's almost 90 million tons. Meaning that there's about 270 million globally. Somewhere around there. So, that's a ridiculous amount of grain. That is an absolutely ridiculous amount of grain that these two countries are responsible for producing. With Ukraine having a, an even bigger share, surprisingly, than Russia. But 80% of it's not able to get out of port. So if we run the rudimentary math here, well, one-fifth of 45 million, that's 9 million. 9 million tons are probably going to come out from Ukraine this year. Uh, and that, that's running with these numbers I got, which was me averaging between two different years because the yields were are really significant in their difference. Uh, one of them was up in the high 60s. One of them was in the, the mid 40s. So I took these low ball estimates so the, just to give us a perspective on what we're looking at. And the numbers are probably higher because, you know, it's a different year. It could be it's probably higher. But just running with these low bald numbers, we're looking at, of what, 9 to 12 million tons coming out of Ukraine this year of grain? As opposed to the 45 million bare minimum that they would have gotten out this year? Now, most of that 43 million coming from Russia is going to be uninhibited. But if the two of them combined make up a third of the global wheat and barley export, and they're roughly even in how much they're producing, well, you take away Ukraine, and that's a sixth by itself, a sixth of the global grain supply. That's huge. You just you pluck out one country, and that's a sixth a sixth of the global grain supply? That's huge. That is a huge number. I mean, when you're talking economics, single-digit percentiles, changes, single-digit percent, percent changes, there we go, can mean the world. I mean, we just look at interest rates or inflation. If you have a hundred bucks and you have an interest rate of 1%, well, the interest on your hundred bucks is only one dollar. If it's a hundred thousand, the interest is only one thousand. But if you have a hundred thousand bucks and the interest rate jumps up to seven percent, well, now you're paying seven thousand dollars to service a debt of a hundred thousand dollars. If you're not making that seven thousand in whatever interval you have to pay that shit in. It's going to grow. And then you're paying 7% on the 107000 which just makes it even bigger. Single percent changes to things can change everything when you're talking money and economy. You know, it just, it's, it's insane. Let alone when you're talking 33% combined between Russia and Ukraine. Which is roughly about what seven sixteen to seventeen percent from just Ukraine. 
and 80% of that's not getting out, that's huge. And then we, then I went further. These two countries, Russia and Ukraine, are responsible for producing 70% of global sunflower oil. And so that's basically like vegetable oil, it's cooking oil. It's really cheap, really cheap cooking oil. The alternatives are more expensive. They're available more expensive. These two are producing 70% of the global sunflower oil. Now, India in particular gets 75% of its sunflower oil. Again, that's cooking and vegetable oil. 75% of India's sunflower oil comes from Russian Ukraine. 75%. So, let's just assume that the alternatives are all available. Even with no sunflower oil, it, there's not going to be like a shortage in India. If we just assume that. Sunflower oil is incredibly cheap. So all the alternatives are going to be a little bit more expensive. Maybe much more expensive. That alone is going to cost food prices in India to go up. And you're looking at vegetables. Mostly vegetable oils are used for cooking meals. Uh, prepared meals, not like... Uh, bread or anything, but like you take that and you cook it, you fry it, you dabble it up, you put it on the pan. Things that you have to like properly cook for the meal to be complete. It's going to cost more just to do that. So you're looking at households paying more for traditional meals. You're looking at restaurants charging more for their food because a lot of them a lot of restaurants you have to use that vegetable oil so you're looking at marked increases in food just off the increased cost of the vegetable oil if you switch to more expensive more expensive cooking oil and that's assuming that there's no shortage of the oil at all which if you're importing 75% of your your uh, sunflower oil from these two countries and suddenly half of that doesn't show up, well, you might have regional shortages of cooking oil. And in those regions, you're going to have sharp increases in the cost of whatever's left over, even if the alternative is available. The other oils are going to be more expensive, which is going to be reflected on the cost of food, especially restaurant food. So you're looking at massive increases well, in the cost of cooking oil in India, which will lead to increases in the cost of prepared food. You have Lebanon, and this one was shocking. You have Lebanon, who gets 80% of their grain from not Russia and Ukraine, from just Ukraine. And that's a killer. That's such a killer. Lebanon is already in a Great Depression. So 80% comes from Ukraine. And of that 80%, only a fifth of that is going to actually show up this year. Uh, so a Great Depression on top of not higher food prices, uh, a food shortage, a grain shortage... That's not going to get fixed. Uh, goodness. It, 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 I didn't even... Uh, 80%. Again, 1% single digit percent increases or decreases can mean the world in these things. 80%. How do you replace that? How do you compensate for that on short notice? What do you do about that? And this is during good times. What are you, you going to do about that when you're in a Great Depression like Lebanon is in right now? But who's going to subsidize them? Iran can't. I mean, Turkey, Bangladesh, and Iran, they all get around 60% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. 60%. And between those three countries... That's 332.7 million people who get 60% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. That, 
That's a whole United States. A combined population equal to that of the third most populous country on the planet gets 60% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And 80% of the Ukrainian supply isn't even going to be able to get out from port. So Lebanon's just dead in the water. Unless France comes to aid them. There's a possibility. But will France? Maybe. Maybe not. We'll have... I I hope Lebanon knows this is coming. Because if they don't, it's going to smack them. And it's going to be just as painful as the Depression. It's, it's probably going to spawn a second depression within the Depression. And you'll have the super-duper Depression. This, uh, this is a disaster. This is actually a real-life disaster. I mean, as as if the war by itself in between Russia and Ukraine wasn't a disaster. Uh, at the very least, that's less of a disaster than it could have been. The Russians are fighting with their hands behind their back. But the ramifications are horrific. Uh, again, Lebanon. What does a country like Lebanon do? Because this is partially reflective of many other third world countries. What are they going to do? What are, what are North African countries that aren't Egypt <laughs> going to do? Egypt has the Nile. What, what's Libya going to do? What's Algeria and Morocco going to do? What's Tunisia going to do? What are, what's Chad and Mali and Mauritania going to do? No, I, I don't know if they necessarily get their green. Well, they're going to get a, a significant portion of it from Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine and Russia make up a third of the supply. What are these third world countries going to do? Do they just fall in Great Depression too? I mean, what is Sri Lanka going to do? They just fell into a Great Depression too. What are they going to do? And they, they were struggling to eat before the Depression hit. What are they... It's, this is a disaster. This is an actual disaster. I made an episode a while back. And we just compared to this, just slightly grazing the topic of food insecurity in countries that might not be able to get food. And I called it someone's going to go hungry. But this forget someone's going to go hungry. Someone's going to starve. Someone's going to starve and it's looking like it's going to be by the tens of millions this is, uh, are we going to have a, not just a famine, but the great famine? Is that what we're looking at here? Uh, I mean, India has 1.3 billion people. Now, granted, they are heavily agrarian society by themselves. So they won't, I don't think too many people might starve there. Although I, I'm not going to jump the gun on that. There's, uh, they have plenty of room. <laughs> they have plenty of room. For slight margins of error, which will end up being hundreds of thousands of people. And I'll be like, oh my god. Just looking at the numbers. And they'll be like, oh yeah, that's .001% of the population. We're good. And it's like... But, and, and here in the United States, we're insulated too. We're a, we're a grain exporter ourselves. Which is great for us, you know. I guess the Biden administration didn't screw that one up yet. But th that also, uh, by the way, uh, gives credence to my arguments about fuel prices, where if we were energy independent, we'd also be insulated from rising oil prices, just like how us being a food exporter makes us insulated to rising food prices. So I'll just leave that on the table. I'll never let it go. Just, just going to leave that on the table. But what about the countries that aren't grain exporters? What about the countries that import the majority of their food? And are not importing fish, but are importing things you have to grow out of the ground. What happens then? What happens to them? Africa. Particularly North Africa. Where it's desert. What happens to them? Uh, what happens to Europe? I mean, th those Europeans, they import a lot of food. 
Uh, they, they're approximate to Ukraine, so they get a lot of it from Ukraine. They grow a bit, but you top off all the other issues regarding energy, regarding inflation for them as well, regarding heating costs, because the cost of heating is going up because they're not getting natural gas anymore. They cut themselves off from Russia. You add higher prices of food, they won't necessarily have a famine. Or like like you we're talking about in Lebanon, probably Syria, and lots of other third world nations, Europe probably won't have a famine. But they're going to have higher food prices on top of rising prices across the board. And that's going to cause political upheaval. What, what do you do when faced with numbers like these? Because there's, there's no time to course correct here. Either the war stops and all that excess production of food is able to get out. Or the war goes on. And you're just, you're just screwed. You just have to take that L and die. What type of subst- uh, substitutes are going to be found? That'll be interesting to look at. Maybe maybe people will actually start eating bugs. Oh, goodness. But this is so... This is bad. This is really, really bad. Uh, it's crazy looking at these numbers. And this is just two countries. Just two countries so important to the global economy and I guess uh, in retrospect it's it seems ridiculous that people even bothered comparing Russia's economy to the size of New York New York New York is not responsible for a sixth of global wheat supply it it's crazy how much these are produce how much India and no, India how much Russia and Ukraine produce agriculturally and export because it's not just production it's export it's it's insane and man th- this is big this is really really big I, I I've said all I have to say which is probably why I'm I, I'm all out of words right now this is just, it's, just it, it's insane to look at those Oh my goodness. I, I hope you all have food tucked away somewhere. I really do. I know I do. I have food tucked away. We almost have more food than we know what to do with. Uh, but I guess we'll just eat it. But goodness. This is huge. And I wonder how many governments are paying attention to this. Like, Certainly a good number of them know. But I wonder how many of them are paying attention, particularly ones that are already dealing with crises right now, like Lebanon and Sri Lanka, or even Libya, who's in the middle of a civil war, or Syria for that matter, too. It's going to be interesting how countries respond to this when this hits. Uh, uh, This is going to be huge. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. It's going to be huge. It's going to be global. It's going to change things probably i can see political upheaval like what we're seeing in sri lanka we are in some wild times and therefore we're in for a wild ride these next few months and probably next few years I, I can't wait to see what happens when the China-Taiwan stuff kicks off. Oh, that'll be that'll be so fun, won't it? Dealing with food shortages and a chip shortage at the same time. Oh man, with record high oil prices, this is gonna be these are gonna be some fun 2020s. I can tell you that. But goodness, <laughs> goodness, that, that's all I have for you today. That's all I have for you today. I'm just sort of soaking in it all. As I, immediately after I delivered this to you, even though I wrote this, but you know, saying it out loud just gives it much more weight than when you write it down. Just like how when you can write a whole, you can write a whole essay, but if you don't read it out loud, you might miss things that would be obvious to you if you were speaking out loud. 
So it just, it hits harder when I say these out loud. Because, again, I, I have my notes right in front of me. I can, I've written down everything. But saying it and sitting in what I've said as it's coming out of my mouth, it, it just feels more real. It feels more consequential. And it hits harder. Difficult to explain, but I'll just put it that way. But alas, that's all I have for you today. I hope you have food. Alright, I'll sincerely hope you have food, especially if you're in countries that get your grain from Ukraine and Russia. I hope you have food. And if you don't, please get some. But alas, that's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I hope you're preparing for the wild ride we're all in for. Let's go. And, oh, goodness, the world is changing, folks. It really is changing. But, as always, we will have fun watching it change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus. And get some food. <laughs>